Hello and welcome to the Gladstones Land podcast. This is a bonus episode. Uh, this week's regular episode was uh, episode 8 on costume and dress in early modern Edinburgh and included a, uh, an interview with Holly Black, one of the members of staff at Gladstones Land who is an expert on uh, Renaissance and early modern clothing. We were not able to include the whole of the interview in the uh, the main episode, but it was so interesting that I thought it should be heard in full. So here you are, an unabridged version of our discussion with Holly on Renaissance and early modern Scottish dress. Enjoy! So, hello Holly, it's good to have you back on the podcast. Why, thank you Thomas and Kate, it's good to be back. <laughs> uh, so... Last time you were on, um, we had a little chat. You mentioned that uh, you had a qualification and an interest in costume history. So today's podcast is all about fashion and costume. So we thought you were the ideal guest. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about what people were wearing in the 17th and 18th centuries and maybe how that changed? Yes. Um, So... There's not actually an awful lot written about Scottish fashion in general, um, about the 17th century, 18th century, just anything. Um, So from what I could figure out, Edinburgh fashion seems to be very similar to other fashions. Uh, So in the 1500s, um, I found that I've done a lot of research for this, actually. Um, Thank Holly you. is actually properly prepared, unlike um, the, the hosts of this podcast. <laughs> it's a wig and a prayer, isn't it? That'll be fine. <laughs> so in the Domestic Annals of Scotland, Volume mm. 1, it says in 1598, it has different things that people were wearing. So... The merchants in cities would be wearing English or French cloth of pale colour or mingled black and blue. So it tells us the fabric, it doesn't tell us the styles. Mm -hmm. Um, Married gentlewomen, however, it does tell us the styles. They were wearing close upper bodies after the German manner, with large whalebone sleeves after the French manner, short cloaks like the Germans, French hoods and large falling bands round their necks. And unmarried women did go bareheaded and wear short cloaks with most close linen sleeves on their arms like the virgins of Germany, which I thought was quite fun. quite a lot of influences coming in from France and Germany rather than as opposed to the English court really there. Yes, um, so I think that has something to do with um, the old alliance, that's what it's called. Um, So lots of influence was coming from the continent for Scottish fashion. They didn't have a unique style of their own. They were just borrowing bits from everybody else. And I suppose particularly with Leaf being quite a large trading port and things coming in from those countries, they were those ideas were coming back to Scotland as well. Yes, they definitely were. So they seem to be mostly influenced by the continent. And even the monarchy at that time were influenced by the continent. So James VI was heavily influenced by French fashion. And um, when he went down to London, fashion moved with him. So the entire court moved down to London and only people in Edinburgh who had a connection to the court actually had a connection to fashion anymore. So it kind of, it probably stalled a little bit. People were just wearing what they normally wore. Um, I think I've read that um, 
one of the great problems with uh, James VI's ascension to the English throne was that he was so overwhelmed by the amount of money he suddenly had as the English king that he spent it all on expensive clothes. <laughs> the, the English court was suddenly much more expensive because mm-hmm. they'd uh, swapped out Elizabeth, who'd been very frugal with mm-hmm. James and his extended family, who were all delighted that they could spend all this money on expensive clothes. Yes, so, um, I can. I can well believe that. Um, in in the domestic annals of Scotland, Volume Two, it gives a really nice description of when. Um, oh no, it was Volume One, in fact, when James the Sixth came to Scotland for a visit, mm-hmm. and it describes. Um, all of the the pomp and circumstance that he came in with. Uh, so it describes the um, the clothes that they were making people wear for him. So he probably did spend an awful lot on clothes, and they wanted to make a good impression on him because he was so used to the English court at this point that they wanted to follow their lead and actually introduce specific styles based on people's. Uh, it was actually based on people's incomes. Mm-hmm. So merchants were wearing specific things um, depending on how much money they had. So it was less class-oriented than the English court tends to be. So there were some sumptuary laws in Scotland. Cannot, for the life of me, find out what they were. I assume... I, that, oh, sorry, sorry sumptuary yeah. laws are... So sumptuary laws are laws to ban people of certain classes from dressing above their station, I suppose. Right. And so in other courts, like in the French court, for instance, uh, members of a third estate had to wear black, didn't they? Is that right? And you could only wear bright colours if you were a a noble. The problem with these sumptuary laws is they are widely ignored throughout history. There have been many different sort of groups and countries Mm -hmm. who've tried to bring them in and they are always ignored by people. They never work. Um, so you always get people trying to edge up mm. a, a boundary where something they're not supposed to. Um, yes. But that's really interesting. I didn't know Scotland had uh, attempted something similar. They had attempted it. But the only the only thing I could find about the sumptuary laws were people breaking them, <laughs> were people going against them. Um, although I said, say that, I've got one here, 1672, um, the Parliament passed a sumptuary law discharging the wearing of silver lace and silk stuffs upon a design to encourage the making of fine stuffs within the kingdom and to, dep- to repress the excessive use of these commodities. So I suppose this is lace in being imported from the continent, from, from Holland or something like that. Yeah, and they want to France. So they want to encourage domestic clothes production so they say you can no longer wear Dutch lace. Yeah, you find that a lot. Elizabeth I did that as well, um, or encouraged people to wear wool made in England. Mm. Of course, it was um, to do with, you know, the uh, the British the British sort of putting on, wear, yes. wearing clothes that are homegrown and, and supporting Britain in that way. Sort of yeah. the first buy British campaign. Absolutely, and you get it yeah. later with things like um, printed cottons, they start manufacturing, they start printing them in the UK and then advocate um, wearing mm. things that have been printed here. So your average 17th century uh, Edinburgh Burgess would have worn uh, is it mostly dark colours we, we we wear quite a lot of black and uh, dark brown and things like that or something more uh, extravagant they would probably be wearing mostly well 
again, they didn't really have the class system in Scotland the same way as other countries. So it was just based on your income. Um, so there are, I found lots of things talking about um, lairds in country estates dressed in undyed fabrics that were made by their wives and their servants mm-hmm. because um, they were spending the money on different things or doing different things with the money rather than dressing themselves. So they didn't have this big focus on actually spending money on clothes. If you could afford to buy expensive fabrics, you would, um, to show you had that money, but it doesn't seem to happen as much. Hmm. So, um, so Sir James so Crichton, for instance, would have possibly had a uh, an Aberdeenshire wardrobe that was quite plain, and then for his time in Edinburgh he might have worn something more, A bit more extravagant. Fashion. Very possibly, hmm. yeah. It There's just... Yeah, it's very difficult to actually find anybody specifically saying this was what people were wearing because there does seem to be a lot of different, well, opposing In terms views. of wider colours, there's quite an interesting divide. So you've got a lot of colours that you can make from locally grown mm. dye stuffs. So things like blue is really easy, it's really cheap. It, you know, you can... Woad grows in Scotland people it's a very affordable color Mm. so actually you often find things like servants dressed in blue because it's cheap and easily accessible um in terms of imported diced uffs things like indigo cochineal they're a lot more expensive um so uh, again it's all to do with how much money you have if Mm. you've got clothes in those colors it does mean you've got more money but it is a bit of a misnomer that everyone was wearing black you do see in puritan portraits that you know they're always portrayed in black and we assume that they only wore black and it's because actually their black clothes were their best clothes Mm. and that's why Mm. they were painted in them and um, black is actually a really hard dye to get to stay fast Um, so the moment you wash it it fades Um, so again that's why your 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 nice clothes were black Mm. and so it perhaps wasn't as widely worn as we maybe think now yeah there is a lot of banning of black velvet in the records that I could find. I suppose, yeah, it's to attach to wealth again because it's such a hard time to make. It is, yeah. There is a lot of religious influence on the fashion in Mm. Edinburgh. Um, And they were, (laughs) we think, all kind of broidering unseemly. Um, (laughs) Velvet in gown, hose or coat and all superfluous and vain cutting out, sticking with silks, all kind of costly sewing on passement. So they, they didn't like anything any sort of decoration that was embroidery is that that is uh... the general assembly of the kirk um on their um or what they thought that clergymen and their wives should be wearing Um, and so that was specifically to do with like modesty yeah but i think people were influenced by that as well um just given the religious there's a very interesting uh, engraving of charles the first's coronation in scotland um, I think he he became king in uh, 1625, mm-hmm. but didn't come to Scotland until something like 1631. Um, I believe it was 1633, the 15th uh, of June, to be precise. Okay. Well, as we did say she'd done her research. I, I, I'm thinking of this um, engraving that at his Scottish coronation, you have all of the English bishops um, on the one side, all dressed in their finery and the Scottish bishops all dressed in black. I remember a first year um, history lecturer describing it as um, a Johnny Cash convention meets Priscilla Queen of the Desert. <laughs> yes. But I suppose that that's uh, one example you were just talk, talking about the um, 
the Church of Scotland's influence over um, clothes at that in well, so clergyman's clothes at that time. That does show one example of the difference between England and Scotland. Yes. So in terms, we've talked a little bit about fabrics and colours and things mm. like that. In terms of the the actual styles, that sort of a fairly wealthy merchant, someone like um, Thomas Gladstone, what would he have been wearing? What actual sort of items of clothing? What would he have looked like? So he would have been. Um... So we're talking, we're talking 1630s here, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Um, he would be in a doublet, and breeches, so um, knee-length breeches, stockings, or hose. He would probably be wearing boots as well. Boots were quite fashionable at that point. Um, they were often very long, so you could cover your knee when you were riding. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see, well, imagine your typical cavalier gentleman with his big folded over boot tops mm-hmm. um, so that style of boots um, yeah breeches a doublet with a, quite a high waist so at just that point for, for any listeners that <laughs> don't know what a doublet is what's that it's um, well, it's a, a, a it's a, a kind of a jacket, jacket. yeah um, yeah just a, a jacket sleeves buttoned um, at the front button up right the front. up to the to the top yeah quite high necked um, and often with a point at the waist certainly around this period is that right or is that i i think it would be flat at this period i think pointed is slightly earlier um so yeah it would be it would i think it would have quite a high waist and big tabs at the bottom so Mm. like a a skirt but of course the the church doesn't like that because that would be superfluous cutting out (laughs) it, it raises questions was he dressed like that was he Wearing that, was he wearing earlier styles and plainer fabrics? It would he have a ruff? Uh, a white so, ruff? They're a little bit earlier, ruffs. They are slightly earlier, but Sir Thomas Hope in uh, The Lord Advocate of Edinburgh does um, mention a couple of things. I was I was looking through diaries, hoping for a Samuel Pepys type diary. Yes, Somebody yes. <laughs> saying, I bought this suit and this wig. And this is what I'm wearing and it's and the first time I've worn it. Samuel yeah. Pepys is a phenomenal resort. He's great. There was nobody like that. Oh. Um, but yes, Sir Thomas Hope did say a couple of interesting things. Um, so he was wearing boots in 1643. He actually mentions um, Sir James Crichton, John Meldrum, oh. uh, William Struthers. He Goodness. mentions quite a lot. The Marquis of Huntley. Um, he's very interesting, actually. He was in Edinburgh when the castle was taken. Um, so he's... Um, so very related to Gladstone's land. He's great. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, but on the 22nd of March, 1645, at eight o'clock at night, he's incredibly specific as well, <laughs> um, he had his back towards the southmost of two candles in his room while he was reading something. <laughs> Gosh, he sounds like a quite pedantic man. <laughs> yes, yeah. um, and suddenly, my ruff took fire and broke forth, which he... Uh, which I pressed it to quench, but could not, whereupon I cast my gown from me and ran down the back passage crying for help, but got none till I came to the hall where the servants came forth, and specially the steward James, and glasped it in his hands and took my ruff from me and so freed me of my fire, for which I pray the Lord to make me thankful, for it was a great mercy. So he was in a ruff. That's really interesting because certainly I, I have a much greater knowledge of the English court, and yeah. certainly in the English court by this point, ruff 
goths have really died out and they've moved on to sort of falling bands and lace collars. Yes. Things like that. So really interesting that that's survived in Scotland that long. I think it may just be the term that survived, though. In fact, actually, he's calling what we would call something like a You're listening. You can't see, but we have... Yeah, I found a portrait painted on the 20th of July, 1638, um which I love his description. Um, this day, William Jameson Painter, at the earnest desire of my son, Mr. Alexander, was suffered to draw my picture. And this, <laughs> Forced to draw yes, And this is the picture that he drew with his big uh, falling collar. So uh, ruffs, as they were, standing up, the mm-hmm. big, you know, the big butterfly ruff that Elizabeth had, they shrunk and then, yeah, fell down. But I think... Mm. Clearly, at this point, they were still referred so to as rough. For our listeners, um, he's actually wearing not what we would think of as this collar that Holly has just described, but actually um, something that falls a lot lower and sits around the shoulders, much more like a wide um, sort of linen or um, collar sitting round his mm. over his doublet. I was going to say, I, I also thought that that was also called a rough. So, so I, I would call yeah, I would call that a collar or bands else. or something okay. like that. Mm. So yeah, I think the I think the term is perhaps sort of continues kept. on, um, but not the kind of roughs that we're thinking of. I think interesting. Um, so we've talked a little bit about what the aristocracy were wearing in the seventeenth century, and and what perhaps the merchants yeah. and people with a little bit more money. Um, what are people with um, a lot less money? What are the working classes wearing? Um, and again, also, what are women wearing? Because we've sort of skipped over maybe what Bessie Cunningham well, would be wearing. As far as I can tell, women didn't really seem to exist in terms of fashion. There's very little about them. Um, but Scotland, Scotland again, is interesting. I mean, we are thinking about Edinburgh specifically, but there are two very distinct types of fashion in Scotland. So Highland and Lowland fashion. And then Edinburgh is a complete outlier, being a city. Mm-hmm. Um, so... One of the things that people were wearing in the Highlands was a plaid, which was in a... Or, yeah, basically, it was a big sheet, a big tartan sheet that they would wrap around them, a big blanket. as They would fasten it around their waists. They could pull it up over their heads. And the way it was woven, it could be waterproof as well. So they would use it as a blanket on their beds. They would use it when they were going travelling. And is this both men a and big women? Shawl. Men and women would be wearing them. Are women wearing it slightly longer? Is, no, they're wearing, they wearing them much the same roughly length? the same length. Mm-hmm. Um, very long, actually. Yards. They couldn't make the fabric as long as they needed it to be. They sewed two bits of fabric together to make it to the size that they, they needed it to be. And um, so that is something that people were wearing in the Highlands and the Lowlands and in Edinburgh. So that is sort of working dress. That that... is working dress, yeah. Um, And this is, I mean, let's just jump onto kilts here very quickly because it is a little bit of a misnomer that that kilts are sort of a historic Scottish garment. But this is the closest thing, I suppose, we had to them at this point? No. (laughs) (laughs) We we did have kilts okay. at this point. Um, so the first the first mention I can find of any Scottish fashion, um, specifically Highland fashion, was when Marie de Guise came over, and um, somebody travelled in Scotland, and we've actually got drawings of or um, 
yeah, sketches of um, Scottish people in Scottish fashion. And it's completely alien. I've never seen anything like it. I don't know how true it is or if it's a little bit strange. But they did have a kind of a kilt. Um, so, like I said, it was two bits of fabric um, attached in the middle. So they would wear it as as a plaid, as a kilt. It wasn't called a kilt, I don't think, at this point. Uh, but it would be fastened around their waist mm-hmm. and then it would be draped over their shoulder. So women would wear them more as shawls, but w- men would wear them as kilts and they're very practical when you're working in the country because you don't have to roll your trousers up if you're wading through a burn or through a river or through um, the heather you can just go straight through Um, they were also wearing trues um, tartan trues or truses uh, which were again made of this um, well tartan not tartan as we know it again but a kind of a tartan fabric cut on the bias, so cut diagonally on the fabric to make it slightly stretchy. And they would be wearing them. They would also be wearing hose that would that are like socks, they would go up to their knee. Um, even their shoes would just be one bit of leather just folded up and fastened. And just tied onto their and feet. Actually, yeah. Trousers were a very working class garment until mm-hmm. maybe the eighteen twenties when they were oh, sort of popularized yeah. as something that was much more acceptable in in classier circles. Yes, and, and I suppose just to to speak again of the the, the kilt or the uh, the plaid that you talked about that mm-hmm. was sort of wrapped around the middle and then thrown over the shoulder and so on. When is that? Is it that when they in the late eighteenth, early nineteenth century when Highland culture suddenly became very fashionable. They sort of chopped the top half of the kilt of the plaid off and invented the the, the mm. kilt skirt that we know today. No, that happened earlier. Actually, right. that happened um, that happened before Culloden. So the kilt and the wearing of tartan in Scotland was banned after the Battle of Culloden. But before that, um, there were different kinds of kilts. So it may have been devised by an Englishman, in fact, in a, I think it was in a, fra- in a factory. And he thought this big bit over the shoulder is really getting in the way. Wouldn't it be much easier if we got rid of that? So because it was two bits of fabric stuck together, instead of attaching the two pieces there was just the shorter piece that would just be fastened around the waist. And I believe um, sometimes they would wear those ones to battle as well, so they didn't have the big cumbersome fabric draped over them. They would have their little kilt that would just be um, slightly less big and bulky than the other one, than their big great plaid. Um, but yeah, women were also wearing the plaid and uh, they were wearing it in Edinburgh and it was banned in 1631 and again in 1636 because everybody kept wearing it. <laughs> it's much the same as the subtree laws. Exactly, yes. Um, I found a, an essay somebody had written actually and there were no portraits of any women in Scotland outside the nobility until the 18th century. Of course there are. So it's... <laughs> Um, yeah, like I said, women didn't seem to exist. There is very little written about them at all. Um, so based- the only thing I've got is that um, again the the um, 
the General Assembly of the Kirk um, encouraged that, uh, that them... great arbiter of uh, female uh, liberation. Yes, um, encouraged the whole habit be of a grave colour as black, russet, sad grey, or sad brown, and their wives to be subject to the same. So dark colours so they were recommending. Dark colours. Um, in terms of yeah. shapes, I assume we can base, if we know that they are being influenced by sort of French and German styles, um, what yep. sort of shapes would they have been wearing? Oh, um, so a, a natural a natural waist, mm-hmm. um, slightly higher than the last period. Because it, it goes up slightly in the 1630s, is it that correct? Does. And then it does, it goes up in the 1630s, down. drops back down, drops really far down at the mm. end of the 1600s um but yeah in about the 1630s it would be a natural a natural waist quite mm. a full skirt lots of petticoats underneath to make and it stick certainly out certainly long definitely long yeah um oh yeah very long well not very long it doesn't have a train um <laughs> but yes definitely don't want to be showing long. off your, your legs you don't no earlier you mentioned hoods um is that something that women would have been wearing at this time um so the hood would just be a head covering uh, so the french hood actually if you've ever seen a portrait of anne boleyn that's what she's wearing mm-hmm. uh, so the french hood is almost like a tiara type thing with um the with the fabric at the back covering the hair and women generally didn't go out without a head covering although unmarried women apparently did go out bareheaded um but yeah, women went out wearing head coverings and there were quite a lot of hat styles in the mid-1600s that were very similar to masculine hat styles. Mm-hmm. So if picture, picture your pilgrim hat. Women's hats were very similar. They were wearing those big high-crowned hats with big brims. They, their hats looked like men's. They would just be wearing them over caps underneath um to cover and that would be a little hair. sort of close fitting cap that would keep the hair neat with the hat over the top yes there was also something in scotland um that almost looks like a baseball cap <laughs> i'm not sure i can't i can't remember what it was called um was it a boon grass or something um or a I want to say it was a bun. It had something along those lines, and it looks like a baseball cap. Uh, so it has it's, a little peak at the front. It's got a really long peak oh, okay. at the front. Uh, so I don't know if that was if that was a Highland thing, if that was a country thing to keep the sun out of their eyes, oh, yes, or um, if it was a fashion. But the mm. the illustrations I've seen with it, they all have the plaid over the top as well, and it's keeping that from dropping into their faces. Uh, mm. So that might be the purpose. Um, so it's yeah, I, I think that was there. One of the hazards of walking around in Edinburgh, as we've discussed a little bit before, was that the streets were very mucky. Yes. Um, and you you mentioned earlier these very long skirts the ladies were wearing. One of the uh, one of the items on the tour is that the um, get, visitors are pointed towards these metal shoes that ladies mm-hmm. wore over the top of their real shoes is that right yeah that there were various things that they used to uh, to stop the bottoms of their dresses from so, getting dirty yeah. these are a pair of patterns and the ones they we are. have have a little metal raised sort of platform on them but they come in all sorts of designs don't they yes lots of different designs uh, so yeah the ones we've got are just uh, a basic foot shaped block of wood with the metal ring on the bottom to lift you up out of the dirt um, but you get some that are on big wooden blocks 
Um, so there's a pair in the National Museum of Scotland from Turkey that are about how big is that? 10 inches tall? Um, with wooden blocks to keep you out of the water in Turkish baths. There's an um, incredible pair in the Edinburgh Museum that are ooh. slightly shorter but beautifully decorated. And you're like, why would you wade yes. through the filth in these beautifully decorated overshoes? Yeah, but I some think. of them are very lovely, yeah. And would people, would ladies have walked a long way in these oh, no. shoes? Oh, no. No, <laughs> no um, they would probably just walk as far as the street. Um, and get into their sedan their chair. Their sedan oh, chair. I see. Yeah. So we're talking about the sort of lady who was rich enough to be carried around town in a sedan chair. Although there are workaday styles as well there for um, less wealthy women. But obviously, I suppose we should add that um, the old town of Edinburgh doesn't really have space for horses and carriages to, to take wealthy people through. So no. they were moved through in things like sedan chairs. Sedan chairs were, yeah, the main public transportation in Edinburgh for a very long time yeah um but yeah you get milkmaids in patterns and paintings of them in their in the fields mm-hmm. um contrary to that um there was a type of overshoe that men would wear over boots when they came into the house after being outside okay. um rather than covering their boot when they went outside they would cover it when they came in or again it'd be a very similar when they Oh, you wouldn't take your shoes off in the house. Cold, <laughs> for starters. And I, often they were quite tightly fitting, weren't they? Mm. So I suppose they were, getting them yeah. off was a little bit of a it trial was a job. as well. <laughs> I suppose you don't, um, you, don't really, you don't really think of all of these little things, do you? Of how clothing impacts everything that you do, mm-hmm. everywhere that you go. And you need to have different kinds of clothes for all these different occasions and things that you're going mm-hmm. to come across. Yeah. Yeah, so waistcoats, as we know them now, waistcoats used to have sleeves because it was a lot colder. Um, and so yeah, it does vary. Women and men wore under their outer garment for extra extra layers of warmth, and that's what's developed into the, the waistcoats that we know yeah. today. So basically sort of a, a jacket without a collar, if, yep. effectively, yep. as a waistcoat. Yeah, that you, that you wore as a, an extra sort of padding layer. A little bit like a puffer jacket that you would wear under yeah. your, your outer layer of clothing. What about umbrellas? Do people have umbrellas? They didn't have umbrellas. Um, the umbrella was invented, I believe, in the early 1800s. It was a Regency invention. Uh, so they did have parasols before that, um, but somebody decided to make it waterproof and made a collapsible umbrella in the early mm-hmm. 1800s. I suppose that's aligned with things like new waterproof fabrics that come in around that time as well. They start treating yes. coats and things, don't they? I, I believe. Think I think it's around. It's maybe a little bit later. I think that might be. Yeah, I think that might be slightly later. I, I want to say it was probably coated with turpentine or something. It was probably just waxed to make the water drip off. Hmm. But yeah, yes, yeah, so everyone would have the umbrella got <laughs> quite wet before that. <laughs> yes. Um, changing tack a little bit, we we do. Um, as I understand, a number of uh, in-costume events at Gladstone's Land. I have seen pictures of you two and several of the other uh, members of staff wearing period dress. Yes. Um, could you give us a sense... <laughs> I mean, that's partly because we like dressing up. Well, yes. <laughs> Doesn't everyone? <laughs> um, could you give us a sense of, of some of the things, some of the, uh, the fancy dress uh, events that we do... Well, they're not yeah. fancy dresses. <laughs> <laughs> um, period costume. Period costume. Sorry. Uh, well, <laughs> it, 
sometimes it's fancy dress. We all got dressed up on Halloween in <laughs> costume. Really yeah. um, but we had some reenactors in um, not that long mm. ago as well to well to mark the the anniversary of proclaiming Charles II when they proclaimed Charles II as King of Scotland down at the Market Cross. So they came in with their reenactment costumes. Beautiful costumes, which were, were made great. to original in, in original ways, um, using yes. original materials. So yeah. they were definitely not fancy dress. Had a lovely conversation with one about his shoes as oh. well. Um, but yeah, they came in. They came in in costume. We've got um, a selection of costumes upstairs as well um, that we're getting guides into. So we've got some very keen guides who are Enjoy keen to up. get into costume so we will and be guide in them. People yes. in costume over the summer as well. Because we've started doing as as well as the uh, the guided tours, we've also now started to do room guiding, haven't we? Where yeah. you you where visitors walk around the museum, and in each room there is a guide. Yes. Uh, and so that lends itself a little more to having someone in costume. It, it does. Yeah. So having people yeah. in situ in the rooms in costumes is nice as you're going as you're going through. It's more more immersive that way almost. Well. I don't know about you, but I've learned a lot. Uh, Very much so. This has been a a brilliant uh, discussion on um, uh, 17th century clothes. I think we should add that we've run out of time to talk about the 18th century today, but we're Mm. hoping that will be in a later episode. So we'll have Holly back again (laughs) um, to talk more about the 18th century, um, and we'll, we'll pop that into something a little bit later. But um, uh, until that time, Holly, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gladstones Land podcast from the National Trust for Scotland with me, Thomas Ware, and my co-host, Kate Stevenson. Our guest this week was Holly Black, and if you missed the original episode, you can find it on our podcast feed. It's the one before this one, Costume and Dress in Early Modern Edinburgh. Holly also appeared in our second episode, A Day in the Life of a National Trust Property, And if you haven't listened to that one yet, I would recommend it to you. Our music is Apollinaris Inclicti by Anibali Stabile, recorded by the Tudor Consort and licensed under Creative Commons. If you want to get in touch with any questions or comments, please email us at gladstonesland, all one word, at nts.org.uk. Please also subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And do remember to tell your friends about us. You can find Gladstone's Land on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and online at www.nts.org.uk slash gladstones land. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.